The large neck of land jutting out into the water is the site for another exciting resort being planned for the near future based on an exotic Asian theme. Teenagers, give them an inch, they swim all over you. After four long months of debate and discussion, a new constitution to replace the old and ineffectual Articles of Confederation had finally been written. Looks like a comic strip, Walter. Right, Robin, and this is the title of your story, Back to Neverland. Well, Walter, I was thinking of maybe going with Peter Pan, First Blood. You know. <laughs> Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. This is show number 31 for the week of September 9th, 2007. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and thanks for tuning in once again. In Walt Disney World news this week, we're going to look at some exciting things happening with pin trading, some interesting new patent applications filed by Disney that just may be bringing about some changes to the FastPass system, some Playhouse Disney news, and more. Over at the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill, we're going to see what's going on over at the Haunted Mansion as more details emerge. We're going to stop by Tomorrowland and see what may be coming to Space Mountain and the rumored new e-ticket attraction, talk about Disney and Apple, and lots more. This week, Jeff Pepper and I are going to do a very different DSI Disney scene investigation as we take a look at the story and details not behind an attraction or pavilion, but a resort hotel. We're going to look not only at the hotel, its amenities, the dining options and rooms, but really look at the details and hidden treasures that make it an attraction in and of itself. It's one of our favorites and I think one of the best themed hotels on property, and I'm talking about Disney's Wilderness Lodge Resort. We'll look at another of Walt Disney World's hidden treasures this week with the help of Dan and Eric from MouseGuest.com, who share in my love of the Tomorrowland Transit Authority and explain why they believe it to be truly one of Walt Disney World's most overlooked experiences. I'll go through more of your emails and voicemails at the end of the show as well, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. There's a lot of fun and interesting things going on in Walt Disney World news this week, and let's start over in the Magic Kingdom, where the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique is set to officially open on Monday, September 10th, but I do understand that it has already started doing previews to invited guests and some cast members, and one of my sources that had a chance to visit the boutique said the experience was nothing less than magical. I also received an email from Steve who said, Lou, I just heard you talking about the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique, and I remember that I was in the barber shop this past Sunday getting my hair cut there for the first time. When I overheard one of the barbers, Michael, telling a woman and her daughter that they can no longer do those fancy hairdos for the girls because the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique was now the place to get them done. The barber shop can add a little bit of color and some pixie dust, but that's about all they can do. He said that Michael wasn't even allowed to put the young lady's hair in a ponytail. Mom had to do it. Then he just applied a little color and some pixie dust and sent them on her way. Just thought it might like to know. Steve, thanks for sending that over. So obviously, if you do want to get your little girl's hair done, you can just get a little, you know, some small things done at the barbershop. But really, Disney is trying to get you over to the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique. And from what I see and from what I hear, it really is a really wonderful experience. 
Heather emailed me and wanted to let us all know that the 50s Primetime Cafe over at the Disney MGM Studios, well, actually at that point it'll be the Disney's Hollywood Studios, will be closed for refurbishment during the month of January. And speaking of notable restaurant closures, as part of what appears to be some sort of rolling upgrade to the entire World Showcase area of Epcot, the Nine Dragons restaurant in the China Pavilion will be closing for refurbishment from January through July 31st of 2008. The restaurant is going to be changed in a number of ways, including the exterior, facade, interior decor, menu, and possibly even the name. Obviously, as more details emerge, I will let you know. If you're a Disney pin collector, here's some news for you. The new Hidden Mickeys Series 2 cast member set is now available with an all-new collection. I'm going to put a link up in the show notes so you can take a look at those. But more importantly, Disney has just announced a new way to play for pins with Mickey's Mystery Pin Machine, which made its debut last week at Mouse Gear located in Epcot. It was more than a year in the making, and this new machine features three open edition pin collections, a puzzle, a pirate, and a Disney Pixar pin collection. Each collection will contain five pins each. Now what you do is you go up to the machine, play is $5 per game, every guest gets three try at the game of skill, but wins a pin no matter how well or poorly you may play. There's a maximum of one pin distributed per game, and according to Stephen Miller from Disney, who is a project manager for Disney Pin Trading, he says this is something that they've never done before, and they've really learned that guests are enjoying having fun with pins and enjoy the thrill of a good mystery, and these machines are going to combine the best of both worlds, ultimately giving guests an excellent value-priced Disney pin to either collect or to trade. Now, additional machines are going to be introduced in a number of locations in the coming weeks, including... Disney's Pin Traders at Downtown Disney's Marketplace, the Tomorrowland Arcade, the Sorcerer's Hat at the Disney MGM Studios, and Everything Pop over at Pop Century Resort. Disney went on to say that they've partnered actually with a number of different departments within the company to introduce the new technology to the theme park merchandise division. They're very excited about future mystery pins. They also said that they have a few surprises up their sleeve, so you never know what may happen. What I'll do is I'll put a couple of pictures up in the show notes to the some of the pins as well as the different machines to give you an idea of what they look for and if you've had a chance to use them and uh, play with the machines at all by all means please let us know all right moms this one is for you because chances are if you're listening to the show and you think going to the walt disney world resort is your idea of the perfect family vacation more than likely you know how to make the most out of that vacation you know where all the baby care centers are and you are probably the trip planning guru of your family well get ready because disney wants you because as part of the Year of a Million Dreams, Disney announced last week a launch of a nationwide search for moms who have mastered the art of planning a Walt Disney World vacation. Twelve finalists are going to be selected to serve on a first-ever online Walt Disney World Moms panel. These 12 parents are going to have the opportunity to share their knowledge of the resort, personal secrets of success with their families, and in exchange, they're going to all receive a six-day five-night vacation to the Walt Disney World Resort for themselves and three other guests. Meg Crofton, president of the Walt Disney World Resort, said, We couldn't think of a better way to provide vacation planning advice than to create an online forum. This will assist guests who are looking for real and reliable vacation recommendations that fit their family's travel needs. Now, the Walt Disney World Moms panel can be found at DisneyWorldMoms.com and will feature content provided by the panel when it goes live in January 2008. It's also going to give guests the opportunity to pose specific questions and have them answered by the panelists. You have from September 6th through October 5th, 2007 to get your application in to DisneyWorldMoms.com and in 300 words or less, 
you have to answer three questions and explain why you should be considered for the Walt Disney World Moms panel. Now, I'm looking forward to seeing this for a number of reasons, as it does appear as though, based on the description, that Disney may be taking its first steps into creating an online community for adults. So we'll keep an eye out. Again, that's DisneyWorldMoms.com. Look for that to launch in January 2008. Over at the Disney MGM Studios, the new lighting effects are online over at the Sorcerer's Hat, and according to people that have gotten a chance to see it, includes strobe lights, twinkling lights, and a lot more effects, obviously verifying what we discussed a few weeks ago in that, like it or not, the Sorcerer's Hat is not going anywhere anytime soon. And speaking of rumors that may just be turning into fact, I spoke a long time ago about some possible changes coming to the FastPass system, and recent patent applications by Disney may just be lending some truth to that rumor. Disney is seeking to patent a new technology that's going to allow you to do a number of different things. For example, you may be able to one day order, view, and change FastPass tickets from your cell phone, home computer, and even your resort television. And speaking of resorts, the long-standing rumor about a hierarchical system of FastPass based on your resort may also just be coming true, as guests could receive preferential treatment based on the price of their Disney accommodations, meaning that people staying at the Grand Floridian, for example, may be even able to get faster fast passes than someone staying at the All-Star Resorts. Now, the use of these current and emerging technologies by Disney may also extend beyond the FastPass system. Disney spokeswoman Kim Prunty said the technology is envisioned for use in connection with all sorts of guest services, such as shopping and dining room management, but there are no plans to change the FastPass system right now as the technology listed in the patents are still in the very early stages of development. Other details about the patent applications include how guests or cast members can revise FastPass times via text messages in case there needs to be a change due to guest plans, broken attractions, etc. It's unclear, at this time anyway, how people who may be able to use the text-based uh, messaging system may or may not have an advantage over those who don't use it and go right to just the existing kiosks in the park. One notable piece of the application was the mention of Disney's ability to track guests around the park who do use the cell phone system. Now, while some people may like that or dislike that or uh, think about some privacy concerns, remember really that such a system is likely in place now. Um, as you're really, you're tied to your ticket and your key to the world card, and it's tied personally to you. So each time that you use it, Disney can likely see what attractions you visit and revisit, and when, and where do you get fast passes for, where do you shop, where do you eat, and so forth. And I don't think there's really any sort of diabolical or menacing motives behind it, but I really do believe that Disney can use the information to enhance the guest experience as a whole. Finally, back over to the Disney MGM Studios, the Playhouse Disney in Concert series began last week, and if you have little ones, or just can't get enough of Johnny and the Sprites, here is a list of the upcoming concerts. Remember, the tickets for the shows are free, but on a first-come, first-served basis, so as soon as you enter the studios, if you are going within the next month or so, make sure you go over to the Coaster Courtyard Concert Stage, that's by the Rock and Roller Coaster, to pick up your tickets. I'd send the fastest guy in the party, or girl, uh, because you don't. all the guests don't need to all be there. Uh, the entire party doesn't need to be present to, to get the tickets, nor do they have to have your park tickets. So here's the lineup that's coming. September 6th to the 9th just ended was the Doodle Bops. From the 13th to the 16th is Playhouse Disney Live. The 20th to the 23rd are the Imagination Movers. The 27th to the 30th and the 4th to the 7th of October is Choo Choo Soul with Genevieve. October 11th to the 14th is Ralph's World. 18th to the 21st is Johnny and the Sprites. 
and the 25th to the 28th is Dan Zanes and Friends. If you want to discuss any of these news stories, head on over to the forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com and look in the WDW News section or the WDW Radio Message forums. Over in the Walt Disney World rumor mill this week, Haunted Mansion updates are starting to come in as some guests and cast members have had a chance to see the new effects that are currently operational. I'm going to report these as rumor, although they are based on first-hand reports. The stretching room has received a lot of the big upgrades that we talked about and a few new surprises as the gargoyles in the room now turn and move their heads when the lights go out. It the You get the feeling of bats flying by as there's bursts of air kind of being blown on guests. Most importantly, the ghost host sounds as though he's floating around the room and supposedly this effect is absolutely amazing. The portrait hall has the rumored left-hand side new windows with the wind, thunder, and lighting effects and the new floating crystal ball in the seance room with Madame Yoda has also been implemented and for those that have seen it and compared it to Disneyland's, they think it's even better. Speaking of Disneyland, the attic scene with the bride is now supposedly identical to the Disneyland version with the ghost bride and some new effects that I will not spoil for you. Most importantly, the existing effects that were in need of some definite TLC in the attraction have been restored and the new audio is supposedly wonderful. One thing though to note is that there was no mention of the staircase scene as yet, which leads me to believe that it may not be fully functional at this time. Apparently, Although the Haunted Mansion refurb is on schedule, they might not be able to have everything running right now and to be able to preview it to casts uh, in the full form until it opens up to guests. Now, one other thing to note is about the story of the Haunted Mansion itself, because Disney has stated that in the long, sad tale of Constance on her wedding days, and now we have a name for for the bride, it finally comes to light, because for almost 40 years, our guests have come face to face with Constance the bride, Now it's time to meet her and her grooms face-to-face, all five of them. They all loved Constance. In fact, you could say they lost their heads over her. That's Disney's joke, not mine. They also say that observant guests are going to see more of the 999 Happy Haunts, cavorting on seemingly endless staircases leading to secret realms. Watch closely and you'll see evidence of these resonance. There are glowing footprints, candles going out, and other haunts revealing themselves in the mansion's infamous corridor of doors. I also got an email from Mike who said, Lou, somebody at the podcast mentioned the testing of Illumination's fireworks. Well, the globe will be down for rehab soon, and he thinks that additional fireworks are going to be required to fill in the big void where the globe travels from the American Gardens Theater to the center of the World Showcase Lagoon. This refurb may happen within the next few days or weeks and should only last a couple of weeks, but look for some new effects to be put in place while the globe is down. Walt Disney World is letting guests who have reservations at Disney's Caribbean Beach Resort know that the main feature pool over at Old Port Royal will be closed for refurbishment from January 7th, 2008 to sometime until mid-September. Now, while the pools in Jamaica Village and Barbados will have temporary child-side slides 
installed during this time period, it's unclear as to what type of changes or additions may be coming. Now, this may be something as simple as the installation of zero-depth entrances or the oft-rumored Pirates of the Caribbean-themed overlay, which I'm sure would be a huge draw to families that may not have considered staying at the resort otherwise. Obviously, as I find out more, I'll report it here on the show. A few months ago, I spoke about a rumor sent to me by one of my sources, and it's time for an update, as we've now heard a little bit more about the proposed plans to bring the Apple Store to Walt Disney World. Apparently, from what my source has been told from someone with ties to Apple, the plan is for an Apple store to be the weenie for the shopping area of the Western Way development, much as the Virgin Megastore sits as the weenie in downtown Disney. The Apple store they plan to build will be one of the largest yet and will also feature an auditorium-style conference room where they could, theoretically, hold press conferences with information from everything about new Apple products to new technology that they're going to use in Pixar films. As my source's source also suggested, there, although they were a little bit less sure about this part, the store may feature a Pixar exhibit that will show off various techniques that the artists at Pixar use, demo some home video editing products from Apple such as Final Cut Pro that could help you make your own uh, movies or animated cartoons at home, and feature a movie theater of sorts where they could show trailers for past and present Pixar films. Apparently, the grand opening of the store would also be expected to feature a new iPod branded in some Disney fashion and feature a series of Disney movies preloaded on it. Now, if this is true, this may very well be the first in, the, in one of many large steps in a marriage of, on many levels, really, between Apple and Disney. Jessica from ifwecandreamit.blogspot.com asked me to let you guys know that the at, over at Epcot, the old logo is now in topiary form behind Spaceship Earth. Now, I've also learned that backstage, Disney has been re-releasing the old Epcot Center news briefs from 1982. They're releasing them every day, and they're corresponding to the day of what was going on and, and happening in the park 25 years ago. Now, this seems to have confused just a few cast members who are thinking that this is actually current news, but I think it's really neat that they are releasing these, at least to the cast members. Also, in the hallways by cast services, there is vintage construction photos, there's posters, there's old Epcot music, there's a lot of things featuring the old logos. This is fueling the rumor that maybe the, the old logos that were attached to the, to the pavilions may be coming back, although the release of retro merchandise and mouse gear has people wondering if that's true or if it's just going to be in time for Epcot's celebration. Speaking of which... I have also learned that for the celebration and rededication ceremony on October 1st, things are going on both internally and for the guests, and supposedly there's going to be a lot of great things happening on that day, and cast members are telling me that they feel that Jim McPhee has done an amazing job in this the very short amount of time that he was given, so I am looking forward to not only the Celebration 25 fan event that I'm going to that day, but the rededication ceremony as well. It seems like it is going to be something really, really exciting, and I'm definitely looking forward to it. Okay, the next bit of news is not really that big a deal in relation to maybe uh, what was going on in Epcot for the 25th, but if you have been to Epcot recently and you've seen the construction walls between the seas and the land pavilion, it is only supposedly to construct a, a larger stroller parking zone. It's not a new attraction, it's not a new kiosk, anything like that. So sorry to disappoint those of you that emailed me wondering what may be going on there. Finally, big rumors, let's go back to Space Mountain and the rumors we talked about a few weeks ago. 
I have some information coming directly from some friends of the mountain, and they include that Space Mountain will be getting station gates. As right now, there is currently nothing keeping people from walking or jumping or falling directly onto the track in the load areas. So that is one of the things that's definitely coming in. More importantly, he let me know that the mountain was also open late for a few nights recently as the Magic Kingdom executive team, as well as WDI, that's Walt Disney Imagineering, could do a number of ride-throughs. And one thing they wanted to do was ride the attraction with all the lights off. So only the sources of light were the star projectors. Now, this was important because the cast members had to walk around and operate the ride only using flashlights because the Imagineers were trying to see how the load area lights affected the visibility of the stars. They found out that the stars are much more brilliant in this scenario and that you could really see more of them. However, the projectors and the mirror balls and things like that really kind of stood out. So there's talk of covering the load area so that light does not uh, intrude into the attraction itself. There's also a lot of talk about the onboard audio and sources have also heard that the trains, if the new audio system is installed, may be too heavy for the current track to support it. So they may either replace sections of the current track or reinforce it somehow. That is going to lead to the extended closure of the mountain. Now, as for the timeline, supposedly they've been pushing back this refurb for years, and Engineering Services is telling some people that this may happen next June. Other sources are saying it's going to be pushed back again until 2009. Either way, this refurb is going to be a big one. It's going to take a long time. It's going to be out of service for at least nine months to a year. Staying in, t- in uh, Tomorrowland, as for the new e-ticket attraction that I mentioned last week, there are some questions arising about the use or demolition of the Galaxy Palace Theater coming from another source who believes that the location may be too small for an e-ticket and that expanding it will either involve demolishing of the administrative and handicapped parking that's behind it or the discru- destruction of the Carousel of Progress, which separates that from the Skyway building. I know many people believe the carousel may never go away. I know many people hope the carousel never goes away. I'm one of them. Now, my source goes on to let me know that while the uh, the venue, the Galaxy Palace Theater, is not used very often, it is crucial for programs like Magic Music Days and events such as Grad Night and Nights of Joy. He believes that the Skyway Building is the more probable location of for any sort of development in Tomorrowland. Right now, like we said, it is only used as a bathroom on the first floor, and upstairs is housed the timekeeper, who's still sleeping forever in his little wooden crate, as well as the old gondolas. It's also interesting to note that eight of the nine projectors for the old timekeeper Circle Vision 360 theater are stored in a back corridor of Space Mountain. Supposedly, one of them got destroyed during the demolition and installation of the Laugh Floor Comedy Club. So that's going to do it for this week's rumors. Again, if you want to discuss any of these, head on over to the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. If you have any rumors that you want to share, you can send them to me at Lou at WDWRadio.com or call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. Tomorrowland Transit Authority Metroliner Nonstop now departing Rocket Tower Plaza Station for a round-trip Super Skyway Tour. Welcome aboard, TTA travelers. Whether you're a humanoid, a robot, or an alien passenger, 
We hope you enjoy your trip along Tomorrowland Transit Authority's Super Skyway. One of my all-time favorite attractions in, in Walt Disney World is actually this week's Hidden Treasure. So you're saying, all right, Lou, how can a ride be a hidden treasure? Well, I brought along some people who seem to agree with me about this, and that is Eric and Dan from Mouse Guest Weekly. Fellas, welcome back to the WDW Radio Show. Hey, Lou. Thanks for having us. Thanks. All right, Eric, this was your suggestion, so you have to explain to everybody why this attraction qualifies as a hidden treasure and tell us what it is. Okay. Well, in a way, it is a hidden treasure because the entrance is... In a, in a manner of speaking, it is kind of hidden. It's an attraction a lot of people walk by, probably without even knowing that they walk by it. It's a attraction wonderful in its simplicity, but it's just a fantastic experience. And we're talking about the Tomorrowland Transit Authority at the Magic Kingdom. You mean the Woodway People Mover? Uh, I'm not familiar <laughs> with that. that. That might be before my time. Like Scopa time, like... <laughs> yeah, so that may have been in, in Scopa's days, uh, what they called it. The TTA. All right, yeah, that, okay. Maybe I'm, I, I still refer to it as the Woodway People Mover. That opened back in July of 1975. It changed to its current name of, of the Tomorrowland Transit Authority back in June of 1994. But um, for, for sentimental reasons, I still refer to it as the People Mover. That's okay. Well, you're forgiven. <laughs> and I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I absolutely love this attraction for so many different reasons. And I think it's a hidden treasure not just because the, the entrance is hidden or because there's usually never a line for it. But I think it, it's it's such a, a restful and such a relaxing thing. It gives you such unique perspectives of Tomorrowland and the castle. Um, I love riding this at night. I think it's just I can just go you know on time and time again at night. Yeah, I think what's interesting too is this attraction has got no thrills, no audio animatronics, not even a real sense of story. It's just simply just your a, a transportation around Tomorrowland. It uh, doesn't have the themed queue even. No characters, no nothing. But there's just something about, like you said, it's relaxing. It's a great, when you want the sensory deprivation uh, <laughs> that you, you really need at times at, at Walt Disney World, it's a great attraction to experience. It's, it's shaded. It's fairly long, but 10, 15 minutes uh, in the shade. You get a nice little breeze. Uh, you can kind of take it easy, relax. Uh, there are times of darkness, so your eyes can rest. It's just a, it's a great uh, way to kind of it, get out of the hustle and bustle of the parks and yet still enjoy the park itself. Right. Plus, you know, you get some really unique views of some of the attractions in Tomorrowland. You go inside Space Mountain, and if you ride right near the end of the night, you may actually catch Space Mountain with the lights on. I've seen that before. You go through some attraction like Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin. You go over Mickey's Star Traders. Um, and it's just, it's a wonderful experience in the day. It's, it's completely different at night. I, I think it's awesome, but I'm going to show my, my Uber geekdom and you have to, because you said something <laughs> that there were no characters and there were no story, but believe it or not, like everything else in Walt Disney world, there is actually a story to it. And there's somewhat of a, of a character reference in here, because if you really listen carefully to your narration, you'll hear him say, paging Mr. Morrow, Mr. Tom Morrow, your party from Saturn has arrived, please give them a ring, but on cheek. Well, Tom Morrow <laughs> was, a, was a reference to Tom Morrow from the old Flight to the Moon attraction that used to be in Tomorrowland. Yes, there's, yeah, I, I mean, there's 
some story. It's not a, a real, you know, story-driven experience like maybe the Haunted Mansion, maybe or Pirates of the Caribbean. But the the announcer—that's another great point you made. Is the announce some of the announcements they make are are fabulous. Uh, I love the my personal favorite is just the booming announcer voice. You know the, you know now approaching Mickey Star Traders. I I love that. That's one of the sounds. There are those you know some smells you have on Disney that just remind you of Disney and, and know you're there. When I hear that, I know I'm in Tomorrowland. I love that. I agree with you. It's it's like the the monorail spiel. It's like so many different things. But you know, again, just making quick reference to the story. Believe it or not, one when they redid Tomorrowland back in '94, they really wanted to make it appear as though this was like a real working city. And the Blue Line, which is the TTA, what that rides on, is supposed to be Tomorrowland's kind of intra-city transportation system. That's supposed to be what gets you in and around Tomorrowland. And if you listen very carefully and if you look around the queue and you look around Tomorrowland, there's actually this fictitious red line that takes you to other places in the galaxy and a green line that takes you out to the suburbs called the Hoverburbs. And yeah, I, I guess I am a dork. Sorry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but the really cool thing, the only thing we didn't mention, too, is that uh, as you're riding it, you get to see the original model of Progress Land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe it's uh, what one fourth of the actual total model that Walt had built. Um, which gives you an indication of the size of, of the model itself, but uh, yeah, that's it's it's kind of a bittersweet moment when you pass that, knowing that that is something that Walt actually wanted to see, and yet will will probably never come to be. Right, and it's appropriate that you see it from the TTA because the TTA w- was not only supposed to be a ride in Walt Disney World, but this was supposed to be used as a real transportation medium in his Epcot the city, not Epcot the the, the, the theme park. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, one of the, the kind of remnants, I guess, of, of Walt and uh, what he had, had dreamed of, which, again, for, for geeks like you and I, only makes the attraction all the better. Exactly, exactly. But So for so many different reasons, uh, it really is a hidden treasure. I think it's really one something that, that's overlooked by a lot of people. And when maybe things get hot and you get a little tired, it's a great place to, at the very least, just take a relaxing cruise around Tomorrowland. So, uh, guys, I want to thank you for coming on and thank you for suggesting this. Uh, make sure you go and visit Eric and Dan over at Mouse Guest. They've got lots of good stuff going on there. They're at the two-year anniversary of the Mouse Guest Weekly Podcast, where they cover all things Disney, a lot of animation, a lot of theme parks, um, anything that you can uh, talk about Disney-wise. They have a lot of great guests as well. Also, over at Mouse Guest, they've just uh, launched the subscription portion of the Mouse Guest site. Why don't you tell everybody just a little about what that is? Uh, basically, what uh, MouseGuest.com is is a uh, virtual tour or virtual way to visit uh, Disney World, essentially. Currently, we have the Magic Kingdom open. Um, <clears throat> and what the membership will get you is the ability to actually ride the rides. Uh, you'll see from a first-person view the uh, actual attraction, and, uh, and you'll be able to rate it once you uh, get off the ride. So it's a great way to uh, ride the TTA right after you uh, hear us talk about the TTA. There you go. <laughs> Of course, I'll put links up in the show notes, but you can go over and check out mouseguest.com for all the good stuff that they have going on there. Guys, thank you again for coming on. Thanks for sharing this uh, hidden treasure with us. No problem. All right. Our pleasure, Lou. Thank you. For this week's DSI, Disney Scene Investigation, we're going to turn our magnifying glass not on an attraction or pavilion, obscure crate or overlooked detail. No, 
This week, we're going to do something a little bit different outside the parks, but in my opinion, qualifies as an attraction in and of itself. Of course, Jeff Pepper is here, geek membership card in hand, ready to explore. Jeff, welcome as always. Thanks, Lou. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm very, very, very excited about doing this segment. I think I've been bothering you about it for like six months. <laughs> yeah, I think this is one's going to be a lot of fun as well, because like I said, we're heading outside of the Walt Disney World theme parks. And, you know, believe it or not, th there is some time that you need to spend, dare I say it, outside the parks. And when you do, in order to continue really with that amazing Disney magic and that completely immersive experience, I always recommend staying at a Walt Disney World resort. And one of mine, I guess, Jeff, your personal favorites is the subject of this week's DSI, and that's Disney's Wilderness Lodge. Absolutely. Uh, has been my favorite place to stay on property since it opened and it still holds that distinction yeah and it really has so much going for it it's location it's theme it's amenities it's dining options all of which we're going to kind of go over as we talk about this but more importantly jeff this has a story behind it as well and we're going to get to that story after we talk maybe about some of the um, um the the things that really make this such an incredible place and we're talking about the hotel itself and and some of the things and as well as some of the hidden treasures then we'll kind of up the geeko meter a lot and uh, really dig deep into this dsi yeah the wilderness lodge is amazing just for what you've just stated it is one of the very few instances where there's an incredible amount of backstory and background uh to what the imaginers did with what is in fact a resort as opposed to a park or an attraction all right, so let's talk a little bit about, kind of do a little, almost a mini resort review here and, and talk about the resort itself. Uh, it's one of Disney's deluxe resorts. It has 729 rooms, not including the DVC villas, which are attached to the main lodge building. Uh, the resort opened on May 28, 1994. It was designed by the Urban Design Group and was ranked by the readers of the, I guess, now defunct Disney magazine as Walt Disney World's most popular resort in 2004. Room rates range from about $200 to, oh, say $1,200, $1,300, depending on the size room that you get. Uh, it obviously has a very woodsy, kind of rustic theme. There's a lot of dark woods and red and green colors in the, in the rooms. Um, cast members, if you look, they're, they're dressed like National Park Rangers, and you'll see why when you get into it. And then, obviously, Jeff, next door, there's the Villas, Villas which is a, uh, a very small DVC property, which, which has about 136 units and, and keeps that same kind of look and feel with it. Yeah, uh, the 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 theme that they went for was they based it very much on the National uh, Park Lodges that were basically built uh, near the turn of the uh, century, and um, they really it, 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 it to me it's it just speaks Pacific Northwest. I think that's the feel I get from it in terms of a geog geographical location. Yeah, and we're really gonna get into into some very deep detail about that theming and about those details. And let's talk about some of the things that really make this probably one of our uh, favorite resorts for the non-geek reasons. Uh, first of all, location, location, location. It's on the northwest, northeast corner, sorry, of the property on Bay Lake. You could obviously get transportation uh, via watercraft over to the Magic Kingdom. You're right next door to Disney's Fort Wilderness and can use some of the amenities that they have there. There's some great places to eat in here. Artist Point, one of my favorite restaurants on property, is a sit-down restaurant. Uh, really, really unique menu items here. Things taken from Washington State and Oregon and even British Columbia. You'll get things like cedar plank salmon, uh, grilled buffalo. You'll have, sometimes they'll have elk, they'll have ostrich. Uh, the Copper River salmon, which is seasonal, is actually flown in daily 
um, and really, really an exceptional place to eat. Jeff, I don't know if you've ever eaten there before. Yeah, it's it's a signature restaurant, and we took advantage of it on a dining plan um, about two years ago, and we were just blown away because we had stayed there quite a number of times, but we had never done Artist Point, and just amazing food. It was the first time I had eaten buffalo, and it, <laughs> it was an incredible meal, and my son just went nuts over the, the cedar plank salmon. I was about to mention that <laughs> when you, you mentioned it. Yeah, it, it's exceptional. And uh, you want to really try something good. They have a Chef's Northwest Selection uh, fixed price dinner. Runs about $47 per person. Uh, what kind of gives you a sampling of some of the things off the menu. And really, you want to talk about a unique dining experience, beautiful, beautiful location, um, and, and food you're going to try there that you probably can't try anywhere else on property. I highly, highly recommend Artist Point. And what are the friendliest and sort of fun uh, restaurants on Disney property is also located there, and that is? The Whispering Canyon Cafe. Yes. Big fan. Uh, big fan. Big favorite. <laughs> big, big favorite among uh, families. Yeah, and if you've ever gone there or if you've ever walked through the lodge, um, you can hear why and you can see why. Um, it was profiled, I know, on one of the Travel Channel specials, and really it's just a very fun, very friendly kind of Western-style lodge, family-style you know, skillet um, thing. And, and of course, we all know what happens when you ask for ketchup or straws or things like that. And while you're waiting for your table, you can build with Lincoln Logs. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, if you're looking for a quiet, romantic, out-of-the-way place, stay far away from the Whispering Canyon. Uh, there's also a couple of little places to eat. There's the Roaring Fork Snacks has fast food. Territory Lounge has a, a nice little bar and some snack items. And Miss Jenny's actually serves room service, and it's got pizza and, and things like that. But I think I, I alluded to the fact that I feel that Wilderness Lodge is an attraction in and of itself. And I think part of the reason why is because of a lot of the amenities and the little hidden treasures that it has. And I guess we should start off with one of the, the nicest parts of the resort, and that's the pool, um, which is just, it's, it's big, it's beautiful, and, and we'll talk about actually the whole story of the pool a little bit later on. Yeah, the theming... Of the pool to me and it, here again one of the reasons it's it the, the lodge is my favorite place is it has to me the best um swimming pool theme and you know it starts where you have silver creek which uh starts in the lobby and goes down and out forms a meandering stream builds up and then cascades over a waterfall that ultimately takes you into the pool area and the pool area has um the hot tub areas which are kind of themed to you know hot springs and it ultimately brings you to the very end where you have the fire rock geyser right and uh, and we're going to talk more about the, the geyser itself because that's definitely one of um, the things that makes it the attraction there's bay lake beach and while you can't actually swim in bay lake you can rent watercraft you can also rent bicycles there's a little uh, surrey bikes that you can take around there uh, there's a, a health club um, i there's, there's something else too which is, is worth mentioning and that's the Cubs Den. And if you have kids, this is something really, really cool. It's open uh, pretty much all day. It's about $11 per hour per child. And it's a babysitting service. And they have dinner included uh, for kids who are between 4 and 12. But they do a lot of fun different things uh, with the kids at the Cubs Den. They have um, movie time and they have all different kinds of events um, that they do with them. They used to do something called the Discovery Island Animal Show which uh, they canceled about eight years ago. They used to actually bring animals over from Discovery Island. They had a little show in the lobby, then they brought them over to the kids' club, then back over to the Polynesian. Unfortunately, that's been uh, that's since been canceled. But um, another one... Ah, that... what? Oh, I just, you made me think of something. I didn't go... Do you want to go ahead? Or... No, please. 
Oh, no, just this, this this happened a few years ago, and it, it's it's a kid activity they, they do pretty frequently out at the swimming pool, and it's the duck races. Have you, have you ever experienced that? I had a bad duck racing experience as a child. You, I, I <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> no, I never saw it. It's, it's, it's really a lot of fun because what they do is they get all the kids at a certain point. You know, they, they gather up all the kids that, are, that happen to be at the pool, and they literally take them upstream. Um, further upstream, I think right before the waterfall, and everybody gets their own little numbered rubber duck, and they go in the water, and the winner, whoever gets down to the bottom pool first, wins a prize. And I, I think we, uh, my son, my youngest son won, and we won actually a boat rental. Wow, cool. No, so I didn't. Very, I had no idea. One of the other um, things we should talk about, and this may be a good place to talk about some of the hidden treasures of Wilderness Lodge, is the Iron Spike Room, and this is found over in the villa's side. In the villas, you can access from the main building through a covered walkway. It's a very quiet room. You can kind of sit and read or play checkers. There's a fireplace there. You're saying, okay, why then, Lou, is this a hidden treasure? Well, on the walls, there's a lot of pictures of Walt Carrollwood Pacific Railroad. And as you know, Walt was a big train enthusiast, built a, a railroad, a scale model railroad in his backyard called the Carrollwood Pacific one thing, if you're a rail fan or if you're a Disney fan, there's actually two of the original cars from Walt Disney's Backyard Railroad there. They're not identified in any way. There's no real markings to let you know. But uh, So a lot of people that, that go into the room don't realize that they're there. But you definitely should go by, even if you're not staying at the village, you can go by into the room and check it out. There's a lot of train memorabilia there. Uh, really, really nice, quiet, out-of-the-way place, too, if you want to just relax at the end of a, of a long day. And uh, a couple of the other things I like to refer to as hidden treasures that are, that are specific really to the Wilderness Lodge Resort. Uh, there's guided tours that you could take of the resort. There's one that talks to you about the architecture and the landscaping. There's another one that I, I think they still do called Tastes of the Lodge that allows you to go around and sample some of the things from the different restaurants. There's uh, If you go up to the front desk, um, there, there's probably 16 to 20 or so, although Steve Barrett might say there's more hidden Mickeys. They'll actually give you a copy of a hidden Mickey hunt that you can do right there on property. Uh, there's also something called the Flag Family. There's they have a flag raising ceremony at seven o'clock every morning. Uh, a, a family is chosen every day. They bring you up onto the roof to raise a flag. They give you a picture and a certificate. Uh, other things you should look for too. There's a ladybug release that takes place every day. Uh, at night, you can sit on the dock and watch the electrical water pageant go by, probably around 9, 15, 9, 20 or so. That's on Bay Lake. And uh, one of the things I referred to briefly before, Jeff, and one of the big draws of the lodge is Fire Rock Geyser. Yeah, Fire Rock Geyser, um, as I mentioned briefly, sits at the very end of the um, swimming pool area, right adjacent, or right up, like sort of butts right up against uh, Bay Lake. And I believe it goes off on the half hour? I, I, think, it, I think it goes off on the um, hour from 7 a.m. to 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, and we're not talking about some little geyser. I mean, this thing shoots up, you know, 12 stories into the air. Yeah, it's 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 not something you would normally expect in, in Central Florida. <laughs> or at any any resort for that matter. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, it, but, it's uh, very, it, it's beautiful to look at, and it's very, um, um, it's a com very um, detailed, computerized kind of little mini show that goes on. And, and here's a little kind of did you know about the geyser. Right after the lodge opened, Disney got a lot of complaints about the geyser from guests based on really two reasons. One, that the geyser was going off throughout the night. So people who were staying in rooms that were facing Bay Lake were hearing about hearing this, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, getting woken up by the geyser. And the second one was that people who also had 
views of Bay Lake that were close to Fire Rock would be sitting outside and would get drenched <laughs> by the fact that, <laughs> that the wind was blowing all the water on them. So they actually, it's amazing. Disney installed this kind of wind gauge that detects the wind speed and will adjust the height of the geyser accordingly. And just if I could, I'm going to throw in one more hidden treasure that you didn't uh, mention that is really, really something that my family and I discovered both at staying at the lodge and also staying at the Fort Wilderness Cabins. And that is the bicycle uh, running trail that connects those two resorts. It runs from roughly right around the uh, boat uh, and bike rental area down near the shores of Bay Lake and sort of runs along the, um, the lake there down into Fort Wilderness. And it's a very, very quiet um, trail. It is paved, so you can uh, ride the bicycles on it. And it literally takes you right down into the heart of Fort Wilderness, right into their main area where the um, the, the gift shops and their docks are and the um, Pioneer uh, Hall. You go to Pioneer, Pioneer Hall. Hall. Yeah. Thank you. And um, it's great because it's a very, very quiet thing. I, I used to uh, go biking on it every morning as kind of a workout routine when I was there. And what was really cool was on, on any number of occasions, I was seeing deer. So it was really, really cool. Yeah, it's beautiful. And like I said, you can take advantage of some of the things that go on over at Fort Wilderness, like Hoopty Doo of Pioneer Hall. There's the uh, the campfire sing-alongs and the movies that they show at night and, and whatnot as well. But Jeff, let's now that we talked about the resort kind of as a whole, let's really get into some of the real uh, meat of the resort. And let's start off with the story because... Unlike most other um, hotels on property, there there really is a very, very detailed backstory that goes along with the lodge. Yeah, I think Wilderness Lodge being what it was, they were trying to really reproduce that type of, you know, lodge, national resort kind of lodge, you know, Western type of an environment. And in doing so, they had to kind of give it a history. In other words, you know, you don't build something like this overnight. They wanted they wanted this to place to be a place that had been in existence for a very, very long time, just because of the very obvious nature of it. And so what they did was they created this entire history of the lodge, but more so the entire history of a place called Silver Creek Springs. And Silver Creek Springs is a valley that basically exists totally in the imagination of the Imagineers, but it is the location of Wilderness Lodge. And what it was, was they basically in the early days of when the resort opened, you could find out some of this information, but you had to be paying attention. They would give it to you in sort of the, the handouts or the maps, um, the various things, you know, information uh, brochures that they would give to you, and you'd have to kind of, kind of pick it apart. But what you could, if you put it all together, you get this history. And basically, it goes the lodge, the origins of the lodge and this discovery of the Silver Creek Springs goes back to the early parts of the uh, 19th century and it's rooted in a gentleman who is called Colonel Ezekiel Moreland who was a veteran of the War of 1812 and at that time it was the time period of Lewis and Clark and it was this big you know push to uh, explore the western frontier and he was a gentleman that decided he was going to do that and so he went west and he ultimately uh, sort of disappeared into the wilderness as kind of became a mountain man and you know, explored and ultimately came to this very, very peaceful, tranquil valley, which he just absolutely fell in love with. And he built a cabin and settled and kind of took up roots there for a little bit of time. And he had a daughter who, his name was Genevieve, who, uh, nickname was Jenny, and she was uh, still back east and she was an art curator. 
and he finally kind of emerged from the wilderness and and sent for her and wanted her to move out there with him and they wanted to settle in the valley and so she that she went out and along with her was one of the artists she had been associated with and his name was Frederick Alonso Gustav uh, he was an Austrian painter who was hearing so much about you know the artists going out west to paint this sort of untamed wilderness and it was something that he decided to do too so the three of them basically came to the valley and decided to build what became the Wilderness Lodge. And it kind of started from very humble beginnings, but that is basically the origin of the lodge. And it, it kind of shows you the amount of history and detail the Imagineers decided they needed to come up with to give this place an air of authenticity. Yeah, and there's even more, you know, detail. We're kind of just kind of glossing over some of the things to a certain degree because the, the backstory is, is very, very detailed about the dealings between all these people and kind of how the lodge began to grow and welcome not only guests but artists and scientists and, and people who were just nature lovers and then kind of expanded to become what we have today. And that carries over into why the lodge looks the way it does and why it's themed the way it does. And because the theming of Wilderness Lodge, I think, is some probably some of the best, if not the best, on property. And yeah, and see, that's that's the, what you said there is very key in that there are elements of the Wilderness Lodge that mean very much to this history. And the, one of the best examples is Artist Point Restaurant, which we discussed before when we were talking about the restaurants. Artist Point has a very, very distinct correlation to this backstory, and that is I just mentioned uh, Frederick Alonzo Gustav, the artist who accompanied them out there. Basically, as the story goes, when he arrived to the valley and... Uh, Ezekiel was basically saying, look at this great expanse and beauty. He was so excited that he immediately, on this rock outcropping, sets up his canvas and his palette and gets ready to do everything, and suddenly the ground begins to shake, and it's kind of a tremor, and he's kind of, you know, gets a little nervous, but then says, hey, I'm, I'm hardy, I can, I can handle it, and Ezekiel's kind of smiling because he's saying, you know, he sort of knows what's coming, and it in fact is the geyser about to blow, and it does, and Gustav basically tumbles off <laughs> the side <laughs> of the mountain, and he, he survives, and basically, to show his sort of, you know, ruggedness, he, he determines that that's going to be his favorite place. That is where he's going to be the place where he sets up and does most of his painting of the valley and the area around it, and ultimately, when the lodge is built and it expands to some degree, the location, ultimately, of the restaurant Artist Point is on that very spot. Exactly, and and the thing that, that Disney does here, just so brilliant, is they tell the story through the architecture. And you see it from the moment you start to approach the resort, uh, coming off the main road, throughout the exterior and the interior of the building. Uh, it, it kind of follows along this long-standing tradition that Disney has of its love of nature. You know, they had their nature films um, from, from decades ago were kind of dominated the genre for, for a long time. And they really are able to capture that love of nature and that spirit of, of kind of nature tourism, um, which, which you know, kind of is part of the American culture now. And it kind of adds their own spin and they add their own story to it. Yeah, another example um, that's very, very neat is uh, the uh, Teton boat and bike rental. That's a little cabin that sits down uh, right near the edge of Bay Lake there. Um, you have to sort of go walk past the um, trout bar at the swimming pool and sort of wind down through right close to the beach and that cabin is in fact the cabin that Ezekiel Moreland built when he first settled in the valley that is his original cabin and it's and, and so does it say something as simple as that 
plays to the entire big picture of the lodge. Right, and it's, it's a shame to a certain degree that you know we, we, we see it now and we're, we're talking about it to people, but 99% of the guests don't realize the significance and the story behind it, like so many of the things that, we, that we're talking about. It, I think you know my favorite story um, that's, that was created for it is just, and to me this is just so imaginative, is the story behind Silver Creek and the swimming pool area. And mm. this relates to uh, a character that uh, his name is Georgie uh, McGregor. And he's kind of this kind of vagrant, vagabond, um, silver prospector. He's, he's one of the typical, you know, California ho, westward bound type of characters that heads west. And he finds himself in Silver Creek. And he's determined to get a major silver strike. And because Silver Creek obviously has the name, he's, he's thinking there's a big strike to be had there. In fact, the background with Silver Creek is that it gets that the creek gets its coloring from its high mineral deposits and really doesn't have any silver in it to speak of. But he's determined, and so he goes to the lodge and he meets Jenny, and Jenny gives him a job as a cook because there's a very distinct shortage of cooks out in the western frontier. And he uses that to kind of work his way into getting into the area. And so kind of under the radar, he, he starts trying to prospect in the stream. And ultimately, what happens is the, the 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 customers in the restaurant start complaining because their trout have you know shotgun holes through them because George's not a good cook he's not a good fisherman he's he's trying to prospect and just amusing little stories like that but ultimately what happens is he he's just not really getting a strike so he decides that desperate measures must be taken so he brings in a couple cases of dynamite and basically one morning there's this incredible explosion and everybody comes running down from the lodge to downstream where he was located in a very small cabin where he was doing his prospecting. And there's a humongous crater that has just been blown out of the ground where he accidentally set off this whole entire <laughs> dynamite. And that is in fact what has become now the, the swimming pool at the Wilderness Lodge. And I just, I think that story is just incredible. Yeah, and and, uh, and it ties into with some of the names that we mentioned. We talk about the restaurant Artist Point has a meaning. Miss Jenny's is the room service. That's the person who brings you room service. You see how it all ties back to the story. These aren't just random names that Disney has pulled out of the air. It all ties into to this uh, incredibly detailed story that Disney has put behind what really is just a hotel. Yeah, and it was we were talking about the Fire Rock Geyser. We can kind of give everybody a little bit background on that. And that is basically uh, the story of the Fire Rock Geyser just revolves around an Indian legend that was in fact told to Ezekiel Moreland when he first came into the area. As I had mentioned, he had came into the area and spent a couple years there just trapping fur and kind of settling in by himself. And he came to meet uh, the local Native Americans, and they basically told him the legend of the Fire Rock Geyser. And that revolved around a hunting party, um, a Native American hunting party that would go out in the winter. And they would go out for maybe a month at a time to do hunting. And at one point, they got trapped in the valley. Um, they got snowed in, and they centered themselves around the warm springs that were kind of right there around Silver Creek uh, to keep warm. And they they had a tradition that they would never build a fire unless they absolutely needed to, because they it they felt that it you know to wait be wasteful with fire was going against their their gods or their beliefs. And so they were being very careful about it. And ultimately. They kept deciding whether they would keep building the fire because they had to survive. And finally, it came to a point where 
they had a big powwow, decided they were going to still stay snowed in rather than try to get home and, you know, get back to their, their, their families. They throw one more log on the fire, and at that point, the entire area tremors, erupts, the ground opens up, and the TP they were in basically gets shot up into the air with the force of fire rock geyser. And just that was the kind of the Indian legend that was told to, to Moreland when he arrived in the area. Right, and that Indian, uh, the references to Indians and even some, some Native American kind of artifacts like that, We're gonna, when we talk about the lobby, you're going to see that they carry over into the interior of the lodge itself. But what I wanted to talk about, Jeff, is a, is a couple of things. Let's kind of start on the exterior and the theming because the um, the location of the lodge itself was obviously very, um, very calculated. They wanted it to be on Bay Lake. And the way they fit it into Disney World, kind of, it's, it's very far removed from everything else that's very well manicured and, and very well landscaped. And they, they kind of kind of straddle this fine line between wanting it to look natural and wanting it to look like, wow, look what the Disney Imagineers have done by creating this, this Pacific forest in the Florida swamp. And you really kind of start getting a sense of that the second you turn onto Timberlake Drive, which is the, the uh, roadway that leads you off into uh, the Wilderness Lodge Resort because the, the, the changes are immediate but probably very, very subtle to people that aren't really looking for it. And brilliant. Um, again, I keep coming back to why this is my favorite place. And the landscaping is just so brilliant and just so amazingly well done. I just, it, it's like you said, just the very nature of how you turn in and you are literally within sight distance, clearly, of the Magic Kingdom, of the Contemporary Resort. I mean, the Contemporary Resort is just <laughs> right there, right. you know, right within distance. But once you enter the grounds of the Wilderness Lodge, you do not have a sight line to these things. Right. You do not have a distinct, you know, obstruction of something that is just totally out of place within this Pacific Northwestern environment. When you're outside of the pool, you don't see these things. And it's just amazing how totally calculated and totally well engineered it was in that regard it's it's amazing it's it's just like you said you are in central florida but you are literally transported to a region that is so different climate wise and just environment you know nature wise it's just incredible right and you really need to pay close attention because the second you pass onto timberline drive the road changes it gets very curvy it gets very windy the vegetation changes the trees get taller Uh, you don't even see the wilderness lodge as you first start to approach it unlike some place like the contemporary or any of the other resorts you really can't kind of see it because the road divides and there's this kind of low brushes and there's large redwood trees. And you, you would never find a redwood tree um, here. There, there's things that really kind of um, hide the fact that, that you're approaching a lodge. But every now and then you can get kind of a little view of it, kind of the, the green roof and the log walls. It always reminded me of a Tinker Toy. The, the first time I saw it, and even to this day when I see it, it reminds me of a Tinker Toy. And you can kind of see it almost rising uh, above the tree line, depending on where you are on the road. And again, it's it's so calculated because when you come out of that, when you literally pull up to the front door, you are beginning to get a sense of the scope, but not entirely. You you, you realize that this 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 building has has height and depth and everything to it, but it's still not overpowering. But you're basically it's leading you to a very very wow moment and i guess you probably know where i'm going right i mean well but even you know before before we kind of walk into that wow moment um there's a couple things you really should need to to pay attention to 
about the exterior. Uh, you know, before you get into the lobby, look at the, the massive doors uh, and look at all the woodwork and the rock work. Uh, take a look at the archway that you park your car under before you go in. Uh, look at the topiary figures that are around. Look for the bear claw marks. They're all around the pavement as you leave the parking lot and as you as you kind of circle the entire resort. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's that's a good point because if you park down in the parking lot and basically you, you can walk up a, a stairway that, again, like you said, winds around. Everything is very, like you said, natural and not just a straight shot. And you have just footprints, animal or animal paw prints, I mean, just throughout all the pavement areas. It's, 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 it's just great detailing. Yeah, even as you got onto the lakeside lodge, you'll, you'll see that there. Um, but let's talk about the architecture of the building itself, because it was clearly designed to represent kind of an old timber-style lodge and inspired by some of those early American National Park Service lodges. And while Disney was very clear that they weren't specifically um, kind of trying to, to mimic one, you can see that there was definitely influences from things like the Old Faithful Lodge at Yellowstone National Park. Uh, you'll get some things from Jackson Lodge. Uh, you'll also see things that, that you would definitely see over at, at Yellowstone. Uh, there's influences from uh, also Jackson Hole, Glacier National Parks. If you're familiar with any of these national parks, you'll see clearly in the in the architecture, you'll see that it's there in, in little elements throughout the exterior. Can we go in yet? <laughs> no, because there was one more thing I want to tell you. <laughs> well, hurry up. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just teasing you. That's all. I want to just make you stand outside and listen to Lou talk about all the geeky facts. Uh, actually, what they did is the Imagineers, they specifically did go and they visited a lot of these lodges. They did go to Jackson Hole. They did go to Yosemite. They did go to Yellowstone. Not just to pick up the design elements, but they really had to kind of capture the, the feeling and the essence of the parks. Because again, how do you kind of quantify and distill that theme of a wilderness lodge and then not only do that but kind of bring some of those aspects of the parks back to disney in central florida which at the time was was just a a swamp and it's amazing how they were able to do that because when you before you walk inside jeff and i know you're you're jones to get in there you do not my foot on the (laughs) ground right now (laughs) but tell me don't you feel as though you have immediately been, you're not in central, it's 112 degrees with 99% humidity, you feel as though you're in the Pacific Northwest. Absolutely. It is, It is. again, why I love it so much, because you are totally in the environment they're trying to create. I, You know, when I stay at the Caribbean or I stay at the Polynesian, I mean, I love those places, but you're still, you still get the sense that you're in Disney World. And when I'm at the Wilderness Lodge, I truly feel like I'm removed from Florida, as you say. But you really get that feeling, Jeff, when you walk <laughs> into the real, the, the real masterpiece of the lodge, and that's the lobby. It's amazing. I, I remember I, one of the things, it's one of my best memories, and I was very fortunate, was when the lodge was ready to open, they had an open house for cast members. And by very fortunate circumstances, we happened to be there on vacation that week, and my wife was still a cast member. And so just by sheer luck of the draw, we were able to go attend the open house. And I still remember hearing about it, you know, reading about it, it was coming, but it did not prepare me for walking into that lobby because I was just totally blown away. It is, to me, one of the most spectacular things that Disney has ever created in any of their parks or resorts. It's just it's just amazing it's at, I mean, it literally is breathtaking the first time you walk in because it's, a, it's enormous. Uh, you know, it, it's seven stories high, but in a way, and we're going to touch more on this, 
it, it's very entertaining. And at the same same time, although it's huge, it gives you a very, very comfortable feeling. Um, you, you definitely kind of get immersed in where you're supposed to be and, and that very, very um, comfortable feeling. And again, it's due to some of the details, like the, the wooden balconies that kind of encircle the, the lobby. And let's talk about maybe some of the uh, the columns, some of the, the elements that make up the lobby and make it so beautiful. There's four six-story high columns that those are of stripped and bundled logs and those actually came from real pine trees from Oregon and if you look very very closely at them you'll see that there's some important details that make up the columns and specifically the tops of the columns because Jeff we talk about all the time looking up and you'll see and you should when you go you're oh that's what you do you can't help but look up and look around when you walk into the lobby if there was ever a location that cried out our mantra of look up it is this place because the the the, the interesting thing is you can still you can climb up four or five floors and be looking overlooking the balcony and you can still be looking up (laughs) i mean there's that much detail and that you were talking about the columns i mean so many of these elements that you talk about tell their own small individualized stories that relate to indian lore indian legends um geology of all things which we'll talk about in a second and the columns for instance uh tell a story because as the columns are of different heights on each of the column tops is carved an animal and as you descend from from top to bottom of these column bundles the animals that are represented sort of represent that level of life at that height or that altitude i mean and you know for instance the very top of the highest columns will have eagles raptors hawks all the way down to the bottom which will have turkey buffalo rabbit and, and it's just very a distinct telling of a story of nature as you as you look up those columns. And even more so, and this is where you're really going to see some of the, the incredible detail and, and what Disney was able to do, is in the fireplace. Because Disney really wanted to give that sense of being in this National Park kind of lodge and also highlight and make it very warm and make it very comfortable and very inviting. And, you know, when you think fireplace, you think, you know, the, the, a cold winter night and kind of the family gathering around the hearth. But here in, in sunny, hot, humid Florida, they have this eight-story one as really the centerpiece of the lobby. And it's amazing the fact that nobody seems to notice or care about how just absurd it is that there's this giant wood-burning fireplace giving off heat in a Florida, in a Florida hotel <laughs> in the middle of summer because you just, you know, you so buy into the reality of where you are. Um, and, you know, there's, there's these giant, very rustic-looking wooden rocking chairs that surround it. And uh, the, the story of uh, of the fireplace is something amazing, too, because it's not just the colors and everything else that make it up is not just accidental. It's, it's very, very purposeful. It tells a geological story, <laughs> as I just alluded to. And it's it's basically, it's, it's based on the Grand Canyon. And as you say, it, it climbs eight stories and as you're climbing it is literally telling a story of the different rock or geological levels i'm not a geologist so please don't call in or you know <laughs> post on the forums that jeff's an idiot but yeah, post in the literally, fan thread. You know, as as they as disney has said you're literally as you start at the bottom and work your way up you're covering two billion years of life on the planet or geological life on lack of life whatever (laughs) jump in anytime Lou (laughs) well again the detail is Disney didn't just you know grab a couple of earth tones shades of paint John Hench would be proud because they used a hundred different colors of greens and magentas and reds and blacks and brown and they also kind of made these impressions of look very very closely there's 
prehistoric plant life and animal life to really give you a sense that this is a, a real um, layer of rock, a real you know geological uh, layer of rock that they've pulled out and brought into this and not just a stone fireplace. Yeah, for example, I mean, I, I pulled it out of my notes here. Like, if you go up to the fifth floor, and you do, you have to walk up to the fifth floor and kind of look at it from that level. You're looking at a level that represents the Grand Canyon and what it was covered by ocean, and you have like coral, brachiopods, gastropods, those type of fossils there that are all very authentically represented. Mm-hmm. And that kind of authenticity carries over to other things in and around the lobby and you should definitely take some time and hopefully that's what this segment's going to do to look around for example you cannot help but miss these two 50 foot high totem poles which are hand carved and they kind of face each other uh, and stand guard kind of on on both sides of the entrance and those also tell stories like all totem poles these tell stories of the Haida Indians yeah the, you have one is the raven pole and one is identified as the eagle pole Right, and there's actually another little totem pole, too, that I'm sure you're a big fan of right in front of the mercantile shop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to lead you there, so... Oh, yeah, we've talked about my, my buddy Humphrey, but yeah, we can talk about him again. That's <laughs> classic icon of the Wilderness Lodge is the, is the Humphrey Donald Goofy Mickey totem pole, which probably most people that have visited are very familiar with. Yeah, go back and, and definitely check out our discussion of Humphrey the Bear, and we really talk about him and his connection uh, to the lodge. I'll put a link up to that in the show notes. But, you know, I mentioned the fact, of obviously, being uh, Native American artifacts, and the lodge is just is just filled with them. Uh, if you look up, there's far, four large chandeliers, and if you look very closely, they look like teepees. Um, and these and sort of the mission-style lamps and fixtures were definitely pulled from Jasper Park Lodge that, that were in Canada. Um, the ironwork also looks, if you look very closely, it depicts Native American people on horseback and they're pursuing buffalo and things like that. There's plenty of artifacts and artwork. There's a beautiful replica of a Native American headdress, um, a ceremonial headdress, right in the center uh, in a glass case. There's beadwork, there's moccasins, there's all kinds of uh, authentic things created by Native Americans that they included in the lodge. And and the amazing thing here is that you know, we're, we're, very, we're very much still centered right here in the lobby. But these type of displays and these type of details extend down the corridors. Um, they just don't stop at the lobby and you just get some basic ornamentation. I mean, you, if you go up to the various uh, different floors, there are seating areas that will overlook the outside areas. And in these seating areas, you will have occasional glass displays filled with more artifacts, as you're saying. I mean, you, you, you can just literally spend so much time touring the lodge itself and i believe i think that's one of the things that makes it unique is that there is a tour that is offered i believe daily of the lodge which is something i think that is unique to all the resorts on property is it not absolutely um you know i know animal kingdom has a lot of these things as well but i think not even to the level that wilderness lodge does and if you're looking for something to do maybe on a day off from the parks or on a rainy day You should definitely go over because you can spend so much time exploring the lodge. And that's why I say that it's an attraction because it does have so much. And you don't need to be a guest staying at the lodge to take advantage of all these things. You can go over and go through and try and find all these things out. Uh, But Jeff, I want to just quickly go back to the lobby again um, because I think one of the things that I really like about it and and I've come to appreciate over time is this sort of marriage of this Native American style decor and a lot of the natural building materials that are used um, in there, everything from the floors to 
the, the furniture. For example, if you look at the stone floor, it is a very rough granite, but that was inspired by a lot of Northwest Indian designs. There's a lot of highly polished stone inlaid, um, suggesting you get a kind of a feel of like a, a Navajo or a Hopi blanket pattern. Um, and those were inspired by things at uh, the Awahani Lodge in Yosemite. Um, even the bathrooms on the main floor have this Native American design on the wallpaper. I mean, the, the, the minute attention to detail everywhere possible is amazing. Even in the music. Yeah, actually, yeah, actually what I was going to mention is when you're talking about the actual floor, you need to go up a number of, of levels, a number of floors, and look down from above to really get an appreciation of what it's doing because what they what they they call the floor of the lobby they call it the Indian carpet and it's as you said it's fashioned from sandstone and granite borders but it actually has a representation um, there's it's a symbol of unity of the four seasons wildlife man and all the cosmos and what you basically have are these sort of lightning bolts that cut from the center to the different uh, four corners of the of the lobby and that's kind of that that Navajo type style that you were mentioning. Exactly. And I just quickly was going to just allude to the music because the Wilderness Lodge music is really some of the nicest music in all the resorts. Um, it, you'll, you'll hear a lot of familiar themes from Western music, um, uh, Western movies, I'm sorry, as well as some uh, bluegrass music thrown in as well here and there. But the, you, Jeff, there's one thing that we forgot, and maybe we're saving the best for last, about the lobby, and that's the Silver Creek, the Silver Springs Creek that, that sources in the lobby and carries all the way outside. It goes into a waterfall that kind of pours into the swimming area, and it's really something um, amazing to look at. And then when you kind of get kind of behind the magic a little bit, you see exactly how it works. Yeah, it's, it's again, we go back to the backstory of Silver Creek and basically this area having the bubbling hot springs, and that's basically what you have in the lobby there. Right at the very back, you have this bubbling hot spring, and there's even a bridge, um, an inside bridge that walks over that and then it basically goes out and forms silver creek and again that flows all the way down ultimately to the swimming pool area and it's just it's just a spectacular um design it's just amazing and in true disney magic this, this single source sources both the hot and the cold spa <laughs> the pool and the hot spa <laughs> but that's okay um but it actually is not a it's not a single uh body of water that flows down it's actually broken down um, into a number of, of three different um, uh, kind of water systems that that go down, but the the illusion is is, is unbelievable, and uh, you clearly buy into it when you see it. And the one thing I have to mention too, when we talk about the bridge, I remember being there during Christmas time. If you if you get a chance to stay or go visit the lodge during the holidays, the holiday decorations in the lodge are absolutely beautiful. They do this giant. Um, kind of Pacific Northwest scene out of food and gingerbread and pretzels, which is just beautiful. Yeah, it's it's just spectacular. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing it at Mouse Fest this year. I'm making a point of going over there. Yeah, and, and you should. And, that, and that's really the point, is that even if you don't get a chance to stay at the lodge, you should make it a point. Uh, people talk about doing the Monorail Resort Tour, especially during the holidays, but Wilderness Lodge, it is a little bit off the beaten path. But you know what? You want to take a break from the Magic Kingdom one day? Take one of the boats over, spend a couple hours, maybe have lunch at the lodge, walk around a little bit. Really take some time uh, exploring and appreciate the artwork and the design and uh, everything that kind of goes into both the exterior and the interior. Um, because it's, it's not only a tribute to the spirit of the national parks, but the people that built it, the backstory behind it, uh, the Native American culture. And uh, it's just it's an absolutely breathtaking resort, I think, from top to bottom. 
it's my favorite again, as I said. <laughs> right. And look, I, you know, any any place that's able to make you think that you're in the, the cold northwest, well, again, when the temperature is what it is in Florida, it's amazing. And above and beyond the, the, the exponential geek factor that we went here, um, just as a resort, I, I think it's very tranquil. I think the theming is beautiful. You have the pool, the location, the proximity to the Magic Kingdom. Um, the restaurants, the proximity to Fort Wilderness, it really just has everything going for it. It's a deluxe resort, although for the most part, the prices are not as high as places like the Contemporary or the Grand Floridian. It's almost like a moderate plus um, dollar-wise. So if you haven't had a chance to stay there as yet, I highly recommend staying there. And uh, if you do get a chance, definitely go and explore and take the time and appreciate and enjoy everything the Lodge has to offer. And if you're interested in exploring the background of uh, the history of Silver Creek, uh, link to uh, my blog, uh, 27.19hyperion.blogspot.com. We've posted a series of uh, articles on the history of Silver Creek to go into a little bit more detail than we've covered here. Great. Jeff, thank you again, as always. We have to do this again. Uh, This was definitely as much fun as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, had a great time, Lou. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Thank you all for your emails and voicemails and feedback to the show. We have a lot to get to. Let's start off this week with an email from Ashley Martin who writes, Hi Lou, first of all, I want to let you, Mike Scopa, and all the other people that are training for the half or whole Disney World Marathon know what an amazing thing you're doing for your health. I work at the Cooper Aerobics Center in Dallas, Texas, and our focus is health education and research in the fitness industry, and it's been proven time and time again that exercise really can improve your life for many years to come. Also, it helps burn off those cheeseburgers from Pecos Bill. So, I hope everybody knows that by working out and setting a goal like a marathon, they really are doing so much for themselves and the people around them. Now, on to my question. My husband and I are heading down to Disney World on September 21st, and for the first time while planning, we're planning on venturing off property for today to drive around and head down to Tampa to see a friend. We're planning on taking Magical Express to and from the airport, and just wanted to rent a car for a day. What's the best and most cost-effective way to do this? Should we just suck it up and rent a car for the week, or can we get a rental car on property? Thank you for taking the time out of your life and your family for all your listeners every week. Your wife must be a saint. Yes, you're right. Ashley, thank you very much. Um, That's a great question. And yeah, there are actually a couple of car rental agencies that right are on property. There's uh, an Alamo and National locations on-site at Walt Disney World. They're very convenient. You could actually go to a number of the downtown Disney hotels. I don't know. You didn't say in your email where you're staying. There's also a national car rental agency. 
right in the lobby of the Dolphin. Uh, you can make arrangements and you can get it for the day. You can call 1-800-CAR-RENT. That's the uh, National Car Rental Agency phone number. What you might want to do is check online for discounts as well, too. You may actually be better off uh, dollar for dollar wise renting it for a week or for a weekend depending on what kind of specials there are because they are on all the time but again you can check the Alamo website for some of their hot deals as well as the National Car Rental site uh, for those kind of deals as well Nina wrote to me with the next question and said Lou I hope you can help me out I'm looking for information on the Spirit of Fred Award all I could find is that it originated at Walt Disney World with a man named Fred who went beyond the call of duty during his employment there could you tell me Fred's full name and what he did and what the award's all about? I'm looking for everything I can find about Fred and the award. Nina, well, thank you for the email. And this, uh, the Spirit of Fred Award is something that most people probably don't know about because it's really an internal kind of thing. Uh, it's one of the more than 200 different recognition programs that is present at Walt Disney World. And like you said, it's called the Spirit of Fred Award. This was named after an employee named Fred, whose last name I'm not 100% sure on who really was kind of a shining star and an example of the company's values and visions and missions. And he's, he's one of these people that has the dream story where he started out as an, as an hourly cast member and eventually graduated to a salaried employee position. And along the way, he said that there were five people in the company that really taught him the values necessary for him to be so successful at Disney. So what he asked if he could do was create an award uh, that he, by himself that he could give to these people and maybe later on other people in the company. And he determined that the attributes that would really qualify somebody the, for the award were that they would need, needed to be friendly, resourceful, enthusiastic, and dependable. Now, coincidentally, the first letters of those words form an acronym for the name and word Fred. So this was originally kind of given out, that single award, and it was almost a, a bit of an inside joke among cast members. But now, from what I understand, it's really come to be very, very highly coveted in the organizations. Um, cast members along the way started to ask if they could nominate other people and other peers for the award. And to this day, from what I understand, if, if, if my facts are right, Fred is, is still the guy that takes the certificate, does the certificate, mounts it on a plaque, varnishes it, and, and gives it to him along with the Lifetime Fred Award, which is a small bronze statue of Mickey Mouse um, who, who still received this award in the company. So it's great to see Disney doing those kind of internal team building things. And it's nice when it's a peer to peer kind of recognition as opposed to something coming down from management. So uh, there you go. There's a little bit of the history about the spirit of Fred. Next email is from Arthur Carter, who writes, Lou, last year I bought some 10 day park hopper, water park and more non-expiring tickets. It said it had six plus features on it. On our first trip, we used three days in the park and a trip to downtown Disney. On our second trip, we used three days in the parks. But by my calculation, we should have four days in the parks left and five plus features like water park, downtown Disney, Disney Quest, etc. left on it. I heard someplace now that the feature plus the plus feature does expire and in fact expired 14 days after we first used it and are not included in the non-expiring option. Is this correct? I'll be highly upset with Disney if it is, as I don't remember seeing or reading this any place, and I assume they never expired. It doesn't state it on the ticket, is it? Please clear this up for me, as our trip is coming up in October. We plan on going to Downtown Disney using that pass in our four days. I'd hate to buy a ticket to Downtown Disney on this trip as well. well Art, when you say that you use uh, one of the plus features for Downtown Disney, I assume that you mean Pleasure Island, because you can use a plus option for one night's multi-club admission to Pleasure Island. So, assuming that's what you meant... That's what you use the uh, the plus features for there. But the plus options do not expire. So, for example, you could go, if you have a, a five-day 
ticket with the plus option. You could use all your park days and not use any of your plus features. You could use those later on as long as you do have the no expiration option. So I wouldn't worry about that. Just verify that you actually did purchase the, uh, the no expiration option on your ticket and you could use those for as long as you like on any future trip. Our next email is from Sergeant Paul Tully from the United States Air Force who writes, Lou, I have about two weeks of vacation time to use up before the end of September. I was thinking about spending part of it at Disney World. Normally I go during the winter when it's cooler. Because of the holiday weekend, I was thinking about leaving on the 3rd. I know the Haunted Mansion is closed for a major refurb and isn't scheduled to open up until the 13th. I'd love to see what changes they've made up to it. As far as other closures, I know Rock and Roller Coaster, Spaceship Earth may be closed as well. Maybe I'll spend my extra time on Mission Space. Anyway, I'm thinking about the week of September 17th. I suspect since children some since children should be back in school, the crowds will be low. I'm checking on flight prices before I first look into requesting a room at Pop Century. I'm also wondering what the weather's like during that time. He says, any advice you could give would be helpful. Well, Paul, a couple of things come to mind first. First, you're going at a great time of year. Yes, the crowds are going to be very light according to touringplans.com. You're looking anywhere between maybe a four or six, which is not all that bad at all. It's value season. Value season runs until October 3rd for the value resorts. So you're going to get the best possible price on the resort. And according to uh, the weather, you're probably looking in the high 80s, maybe low 90s with the lows in the mid-70s, low to mid-70s. Um, so it's really a good time of year. Again, other than the fact that things like Spaceship Earth are going to be closed, when you, by the time you get down there, the Haunted Mansion should be back open. So I, I, I think it's a good time of year to go. Again, uh, it, the weather isn't as cool as it is at later on in the year, but uh, you still can't beat it crowd-wise. Another planning question comes from David Smith, who says, Hey, Lou, love the show. Listen to it every week. And, of course, read your trivia books. I'm taking my family, or DVC members, to Disney between December 30th, 2007 and January 4th, 2008. In my 15 sometimes at Disney, this will be the first time that I've been during the actual holiday like New Year's Eve and day. We also plan on visiting Universal and SeaWorld during our stay, so I have a few questions. Number one, should we avoid the parks on either of those days and maybe do SeaWorld instead? And two, besides being in the parks on New Year's Eve and Pleasure Island, are there usually events at the resort hotels like the Beach Club? David, first question, avoiding the parks on either of those days. Um, I've actually been, I was actually in New, uh, Walt Disney World on New Year's Eve for the millennium. I was in Epcot, and in all the times that I've been, I have never, ever seen the park as crowded as that. We were by Italy when, uh, when the millennium hit, and it took me about three and a half hours to get to the monorail. And then once I got there, it took me uh, probably about another hour or so to wait online for another monorail to get me back. So if you don't like crowds, the parks are going to be immeasurably crowded. They are definitely tens on touringplans.com as far as crowd levels are concerned. Now, opposite of that was New Year's Day. We went to Disney and actually, yes, we went over to Universal. Universal was literally a ghost town. We walked onto Spider-Man time after time. It was as if there was nobody there except us. Uh, Walt Disney World is not quite that empty, but still, this is when everybody starts to head back home. So uh, the, the crowds are much, much lighter on New Year's Day. Now, as, as far as other events that go on around the resort for New Year's Eve, yeah, what you need to do is you need to check with each individual resort, because some do have, they have special dinners, they have parties, things like that uh, at the restaurants. There's also things going on like special illumination cruises. Uh, there's stuff going on over at the boardwalk. So there's a lot to do if you want to stay out of the parks and avoid some of those big crowds. There's stuff at the resorts. There's stuff at other locations around property. So depending on where you're going to stay, I would call ahead and see what they have planned and obviously try and book it as far in advance as possible. 
Eric Franson sent in the next question, which reads, Lou, love the show. It's informative and fun, and I don't miss an episode. My question is, other than weddings, are there any religious services or observances available for guests at Walt Disney World? I know that Walt intended for Epcot to be an actual town, and it would make sense to have churches as part of that town. So with that in mind, could you attend church while at Disney Parks? I know guests could go to church services in the nearby towns, but for guests that don't drive and are dependent on Disney transportation, that may not be an option. If there are no scheduled church services at Walt Disney World, that may be a sign from God that I should bring my pastor along on my next Disney World vacation. He'll be easy to spot, tall man with a clerical collar, Hawaiian print shorts, and Mickey Mouse Crocs. Eric, Eric, thank you for the question. And like you said, there are plenty of different uh, religious services held all around properties. What I'll do is I'm going to put a link up to uh, a page over at themouseforless.com that lists all the different re- religious services by denominations. They also have addresses, phone numbers, and websites because you should uh, check and find out if you are planning on going off property to attend one of these, exactly what time they do take place. Now, there are no religious services, as far as I understand, on property at all. Now, I know that for a long time, Disney did have weekly religious services available to guests on property for about 28, 29 years or so. They stopped this around 2002, 2003, when they really cut it back just to twice a year, which is Christmas and Easter, which had the blessing of the, uh, the Catholic Diocese of Orlando. I know that starting back in around 1975, Disney actually used to have religious services in the Polynesian Luau area, where they could fit about 1,600 people uh, each week and up to 4,500 around Christmas. Now, this was partly due to the reason that, due to the fact that at the time there really were no Catholic churches, for example, in the area. Now that's not the case. There's plenty of them um, near all the Disney resorts. So, unfortunately or fortunately, it has been cut back, like I said, until just Christmas and Easter. Um, I will put up, again, a link in the show notes to themouseforless.com where you can find out exactly what denominations and what churches are in the area and how to get in touch with them. Next email is from Tom. Now is the time on the forums who writes, Hey Lou, I actually have two different questions for you. Number one, years ago my mom and I had our picture taken at a store on Main Street where we dressed in early 1900s clothes and posed on the back of a train caboose. We think maybe it was some kind of Kodak camera place. When did they stop using this train picture place? And what is the name of the current store that once housed this train caboose? Tom, I'll take this question first. That area is still there. It is an exposition exposition hall. If you walk down the left-hand side, you'll see there's a number of green screens and different kind of um, cardboard cutout things that you could stand in front of. I don't know when the last time is they've been using it. Unfortunately, they kind of stand there empty, and uh, you cannot take, get your picture taken in front of those anymore. I know on the opposite side, you still can get your picture taken, have it put on a magazine, but the uh, actual cutouts are no longer in use, although they are still sitting there and in plain view for people to see if you walk down that hallway. Tom's second question says, In reference to DAX, the digital animated control systems at the Magic Kingdom, my question is this, were DAX always used from day one back when the park first opened, or is it newer technology that they switched to over time? And if that's the case, how did they control the animatronics in the old days? Tom, that's a great question. And as far as Walt Disney World is concerned, uh, when since Disney World opened in 1971, they've always been using this sort of system. But when, but when animatronics first came into use, they didn't have DAX, and they, they used a couple of different very complex ways of doing it. One was a, a transducer and, and programming each movement individually. What I did was I wrote an article. Actually, we covered this as part of the Seven Wonders of Walt Disney World, and I put it up uh, as an article as well on the Disney World Trivia website. I'll link to both our discussion of audio and animatronics and the, um, 
the article as well so you can get an idea of exactly what DAX is and, and what it does. Basically, what it does is they allow the Imagineers to program all the movements of the auto-animatronics figures. They record them onto a disc and they play them back and control them using this DAC system, which is made up of these giant computers that are housed on the first level um, of the Magic Kingdom, which really are the utilidors in this giant uh, computer control room. And the DACs control every show, every animatronic figure, all the music, all the, the synchronization of the audio. Um, and it's a pretty amazing technology, especially if you think to the fact that it's more than 30 years old. Um, it's even more so impressive. So, yeah, look at the show notes this week, and I'll link to both the article and the former um, episode of the show where we talked all about DACs and animatronics. Quick question from James Froelich, who writes, Lou, my wife and I are planning a February 08 trip with the kids, looking forward to the updated Spaceship Earth. I'm curious about the PhotoPass system. I know you can buy a CD with all your photos on it, but can you have your ride photos such as Splash Mountain put onto these CDs as well? Thanks, James. James, that is not in place in all the places that you can get on-ride photos. I know it is in place at the end of Test Track, where you walk off, you see, instead of a kiosk, you have to go up to a cast member and actually buy your your picture you can walk up to this row of monitors when you see your picture you basically just scan your fast pass uh, i'm sorry your photo pass underneath and it gets attached to your photo pass um identification again that's not in place on all of them yet i think what's probably going to happen is if it proves to be successful over at test track and they see that people are actually going home and buying them as opposed to waiting online and buying them at places like splash mountain or expedition everest they may start to transition some of those uh kiosks over to some of these other attractions as well. I couldn't end an email section without talking about food, so I'll read an email from Chris from Pennsylvania who writes, Lou, my family and I are heading down to Walt Disney World in late November, and I was wondering if you could rate the restaurants we'll be eating at. One, Jico the Cooking Place. Two, Citrico's. Three, Boma, Flavors of Africa. Four, the Yachtsman Steakhouse. Five, the Flying Fish. Six is Shula's Steakhouse. And seven is the California Grill. He says, thanks for answering. Love your show. Hope you keep up the great work. Chris, I have to say, you were were talking about probably seven of the premier restaurants in Walt Disney World, all of which uh, I can't recommend highly enough. What I'll do is kind of go through them one by one, tell you what I think about them, give you kind of a mini review, and then maybe rate them for you. Maybe top three that I would try and visit. Uh, Jico, the cooking place, obviously is the flagship restaurant over at Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge. Very, very unique dining experience. Uh, You can get foods there like flatbreads um, a lot of spices in your dishes some great meats and seafood Uh, they have the most exclusive South African wine list in the United States it's a very casual restaurant yet a little bit more upscale than for example Boma which you also mentioned Um, I think it's worth the experience of going not only for the excellent food but you can really make a night of it over at Animal Kingdom Lodge I guess I'll take Boma next that I think is also good you're going to get some of the same dishes that you might find at, at Jico although it is a buffet So you're going to get a very good value, and you're also going to be able to experience and really kind of taste and enjoy some of the different things that you can't find anywhere else on property. I think if I had to choose between the two of them, uh, maybe if you're going for, it depends again on what type of experience you want to go with. Uh, Boma, I really enjoy a little bit more casual. Uh, Jico, if you're looking for something a little bit more upscale, maybe where you want to go between the two of those. Citrico's at the Grand Floridian obviously has very Mediterranean-inspired dishes. There's a great selection of a variety of meats and seafood. Uh, You have a wonderful view of the Magic Kingdom. You have the open kitchen. Um, It's a little bit less formal than some some of the other places. There is no real dress code, although you can't really wear tank tops there. I really like Citrico's. I kind of like the Mediterranean dishes. Um, Very unique flavors there. 
You also mentioned the Yachtsman Steakhouse. I think that has the best steaks overall on property as well as an uh, excellent, excellent wine selection. The location over at um, the Yacht Club is wonderful. Obviously, you have the, the boardwalk right there that you can, again, make a full night of it when you're done. I ate at Yachtsman uh, about a month ago. Really, really enjoyed the meal um, from beginning to end. I think the steaks were, were absolutely superior. Um, I'll mention Shula's next, as long as we're talking about steaks. Again, this is really kind of the place to go when you're talking about steak. Um, it, it's a beautiful restaurant. They have these very deep mahogany paneled room. Uh, it's a little bit on the pricey side, but if you are a real steak lover, a steak aficionado, this is where you can go. Um, know ahead of time you're going to get a lot of food. Like when you order a steak, you're going to get a big steak and you're going to get a big potato. So when you go, um, go hungry. The only thing that I would say about Shula's and maybe kind of not put it in the, in the top of, of the list is that you can find Shula's elsewhere other than Walt Disney World. So if you're really trying to make the, the most out of your Walt Disney World vacation, you really want to try places that you can't go elsewhere. That's probably the only reason why I would leave Shula's off the list. Um, but again, if you are a steak lover, I, I would definitely um, go either between the Yachtsman Steakhouse or Shula's. You also mentioned the Flying Fish over at the Boardwalk. Um, this is hands down one of my favorite restaurants in all of Walt Disney World. I ate there just a few weeks ago. I think it's far and away the best seafood anywhere on property. Very unique items. Um, the preparation of the meal is outstanding. The service is exceptional. The desserts are wonderful. Again, you have the awesome location right there on the Boardwalk. If you are a seafood lover, you want to try uh, a few unique dishes and again they also have things above and beyond just seafood dishes i highly highly recommend the flying fish and finally you mentioned the california grill that was the 2004 reader's choice award for best overall walt disney world uh, resort restaurant for adults of readers from the disney magazine really really like this for so many reasons it's a very bright vibrant restaurant if you remember the old top of the world from from way back in the 70s that was heavy and dark with reds and oranges this is a very very bright um uh, restaurant. It's got the open uh, on-stage kitchen, and the the menu is really kind of a Pacific Coast style. You get a lot of things like sushi, which is, was surprisingly very very good. I really love sushi, and I was surprised at how good the sushi was there. The uh, the tuna you can see is just of the highest quality. They have a lot of things like flatbreads and pastas and, and meats and some amazing amazing desserts. And obviously the the pairings with the California wines really get rave reviews from everybody that goes to experience it. And again, you have the location. If you could time it right, you've got the view of the Magic Kingdom, Cinderella Castles. You can catch wishes. They pipe the music in there. You can also go to the observation deck outdoors. So if I kind of had to rate the top three of these restaurants, uh, maybe if you've, if you've never tried any of them, looking for you, some unique experiences, I would probably tell you to go to the California Grill over at the Contemporary. I would recommend the Flying Fish over at the Boardwalk. And I would probably choose between either Jico or Boma. I might kind of lean towards Jico if you're kind of going for that uh, really kind of unique signature dining experience. You want to make it something really special. But either Jico or Boma over at Animal Kingdom Lodge really going to give you uh, a, a wonderful meal and a good value. So you really can't go wrong with any of those restaurants. I hope that helped and did not confuse you any more than you were. Uh, let me know where you go. Let me know what you end up trying and what you thought of them. And uh, that's going to do it for this week's email segment. Again, if you have any email questions, comments, suggestions, anything, by all means, you can send them to lou at wdwradio.com. I also have a lot of your voicemails to play at the end of the show. And next week, we'll get to some of your voicemail questions that I'll play during the segment. You can call the voicemail at 206 202 4 wdw That's 4939 
and uh, I'll definitely get to more of those next week. Keep those emails and voicemails coming. Thank you for tuning in again this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks, as always, to Jeff Pepper from 2719hyperion.blogspot.com, as well as Eric and Dan from the Mouse Guest Weekly Podcast. You can visit their website at mouseguest.com. I'm going to post all the links I mentioned in the show this week on our show notes page at wdwradio.com, as well as some other photos and links to previous episodes of the show. If you're going to be in Walt Disney World on Saturday, September 29th, the National Fantasy Fan Club, the NFFC, is going to be holding their second annual convention as well as their show and sale at Disney's Coronado Springs Resort. In addition to the speakers and events that are going on Thursday and Friday, on Saturday, Disney memorabilia collectors and dealers are going to have their wares for sale at the show and sale at Coronado Springs Convention Center. There's going to be a lot of authors there of Disney books, signing copies, myself included. And I'll actually be speaking at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The show and sale is open to the public at 10 a.m. and it closes at 5. And there is free parking over at the resort. So if you're around, you like Disney merchandise of all shapes, sizes, and of course prices, stop on by. And even if you want to just come on by and say hello, I will be there all day. I am going to have a table um, at the show and sale. There's also going to be plenty of other special guests and celebrities and Disney legends on hand, so definitely come by if you can. I'm going to put links in the show notes page to the NFFC website for more information. Also, don't forget that the following Monday is Epcot's 25th anniversary rededication ceremony, as well as a Celebration 25 fan event that I'm going to be both sponsoring and attending. Next week, I'm going to have co-founder Adam Roth come back on the show as we reveal the schedule of events, give you an idea of just how many people are coming and maybe let you in on a few surprises that we have in store for you. It's going to be amazing time, so really be sure to come back and listen in for that next week. On upcoming shows, I'm also going to have more interviews, contests, seven wonders, and so much more, including a few special guests and new segments lined up as well. And speaking of events that are coming up, if you're going to be down for MouseFest this December, be sure to go and visit the mousefest.org page uh, to find out about all the meets as well as our meets as well. I'm going to put a link up on our show notes page to the DisneyWorldTrivia.com website so you can find out about all the events that we have going on, including Trivia Fest, Pod Fest, and the live DSI with me and Jeff Pepper. And if you're going to be coming to Mouse Fest or if you're thinking about coming down or over or up and you're going to book or going to book any Disney vacation, I highly recommend contacting our friends over at the Magic for Less Travel for unsurpassed service, daily discount checking to assure you the best possible price personalized vacation planning that's free to you and so much more visit themagicforless.com as always i continue to want the show to be interactive so please email me at lou at wdwradio.com with your questions ideas segment topics or anything else you'd like to hear on the show or you can call the voicemail at 206-202-4wdw that's 206-202-4939 and as always i invite you to please come by our fun and friendly forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com for discussions about all things Disney. And finally, if you like the show, please continue to give us reviews on iTunes, dig the show, and of course, please help spread the word. Thank you again for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. So until next week, see ya! 
Lewis, Ben from Madison, Wisconsin. It's the 21st of August. I'm standing in front of the fountain in uh, Interventions watching the Muppet Mobile Lab. That's pretty cool. It's hot here. Uh, we'll see you. Hello, this is Ben from Madison, Wisconsin again. I wanted to uh, let you know that I went to guest relations over at uh, Epcot, and they said that it is still in its test phase and that it's uh, not regularly scheduled, and she didn't have any more information about it. Anyway, it was pretty cool, so if you're down here, give it a look. Bye. Hi, Lou. My name is Nibs, as I'm known on all the Disney forums that I'm on. Um, I was calling, actually, in regards to your latest podcast, um, the one about the Imagination Pavilion and uh, the Figment Ride. Uh, and I was calling because I absolutely loved that uh, segment that you did. It brought back a lot of memories. Uh, Figment was a big thing when I was a kid, so um, it brought back a lot of memories to me. But actually, uh, one of the things that I was calling for was uh, Jeff Pepper uh, talked about something uh, about the photo contests, as he called them, uh, that were on uh, every on the upper level. And uh, I was just calling because I actually uh, remember them, too. Uh, they played a very important part in my life. Um, my parents are professional photographers, and so I know on um, two occasions uh, my parents' photographs were actually featured in the uh, gallery upstairs. Um, so it was kind of neat that somebody else remembered something that was so important in my life. Uh, anyway, uh, I love the show, and keep on doing what you're doing. It's great, and uh, I'll talk to you soon because I'm going down to Disney uh, on September in September, so I will uh, try and call back with a review on what I think of the Haunted Mansion, so uh, the new revamp there. So thanks a lot, and I'll talk to you later. Bye. Mouse Fest, a gathering of Disney fans from around the world. Celebrating magic. Celebrating wishes. All About the Mouse wants you to help us celebrate the spirit of the Disney parks. As we proudly present... The All About the Mouse Rockin' Mouse Meet. Join Brian Ripper as we all watch Jonathan Dichter take his first ride on the Rockin' Roller Coaster at MGM Studios. Friday, December 7th at 6 p.m. Only at mousefest.org.